0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Aquademia podcast. This coming episode is the first one of 2024. During this episode, we will be sitting down with Bill Honig, our director of market development in Latin America. And we are going to be discussing a little bit about his history in the seafood industry as well as small producer engagement.
1: And before we get into everything, you might have noticed that we have been in your subscription feed less often than we usually are, and that is because in 2024, we will be releasing fewer episodes. They'll still be just as great, but just not as many as last year.
0: But before we get into this episode, I do want to mention, as always, we are on social media. We are on Twitter, at Pod. Go ahead and find us and follow us. We do have a contact form located at globalseafood.org slash podcast. If you need to contact us for any reason, You want to be a guest, you have topic suggestions, whatever the reason, you can do that on that online form. Speaking of online forms, we now have a new feature that's going to be a highlight of a few episodes this year in 2024 where we want your input to help us mold a conversation with an expert. So in March, we will be recording an episode with our in-house dietitian. If you want your questions asked, to our in-house dietitian, we highly recommend that you go to globalseafood.org/slash podcast, scroll down past that form I just mentioned, and find our very quick survey. You can go on there and fill out the few questions that we're going to ask you. We are going to figure out which ones were asked the most, which ones are really intriguing, and then we are going to sit down with our in-house dietitian and ask her those questions
1: it's gonna be great and like Justin said the survey is only it should take you a minute and a half so it's super quick and easy and we would love to hear from you also as always if you like what you're listening to then be sure to subscribe to Aquademia on whichever podcast platform is your favorite and leave us a rating and review
0: Welcome to the Aquademia Podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood.
2: This is a pioneering industry with a
0: whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience
1: and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood.
0: Today, we are sitting down with Bill Honig, one of GSA's own. Bill is the Director of Market Development down in Latin America. Bill, thanks for joining us today.
2: Hey, thank you very much for having me.
0: So during this episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about you, and then we're going to be talking even more about small producer engagement. Kind of a hot topic, something that GSA is spending a lot of time and energy on. Something that you and your team is spending a lot of uh, time and energy on, and, and we kind of want to dive into that space with you today. Uh, but before we do that, our first question is going to be about you. So, reflecting on your journey, could you provide our listeners with some highlights on the path that led you to your current position in the seafood industry?
2: Well, um, I guess I would start by saying uh, I grew up in, I was born and raised in Mexico. I grew up in Hermosillo, Sonora, which is a uh, mining community. Uh, actually, it's it's an ag, cattle and mining, town at that time uh, in the late '50s, um, mm-hmm. of about sixty thousand people. So um, it since has turned into a two million, industrial city. But uh, at that time, it was very much involved in animal husbandry and agriculture. Um, right. My father's business was in support of those activities. He built uh, feed mills. He built transportation devices, etc.
1: Oh wow! Yeah.
2: and so you know, I grew up. Um, I grew up in those, uh, in, you know, working at farms and, and going out to mines, and uh, and my uncles all had cattle ranches, etc. So you know, it was something that we uh, that we did uh, as young. And we spent an awful lot of time in the Sea Cortez, the Gulf of California, because it was 60 miles from our town. That's was, that was what we did. My dad was a big outdoorsman. Um, mm-hmm. I went to school at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And uh, I was here on a scholarship, but the scholarship was swimming in water polo, so they don't pay for the whole thing. Uh, so I was working in restaurants. And... Uh, one day, I mean, nice restaurants. And uh, the chef of one of the restaurants, Chef Mackey, he was developing southwestern cuisine. And he said, you know, I want to use local fish. So can we get fish out of the Sea of Cortez, out of the Gulf of California? And mm-hmm. I said, well, I think I can. You know, I knew the area. And so I spent a couple of weeks down there and then decided it could be a business. So I started a business uh, importing uh, fish from Mexico I was buying from. Uh, small artisanal producers, um, the SETI Indian tribe, or the SETI tribe in Mexico. And then from there, it, it just kind of snowballed. I, I ended up working for Shamrock Foods, which is a multi billion dollar food uh, broadline distributor. And I went to, and I just followed that path and, um, and ended up uh, running shrimp farming operations in uh, Central America. Because the transition from in those in those years from the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s was that that's when agriculture really started developing, and uh, I thought that there was a really cool activity. Um, you know, I, I was seeing how we were fishing and extracting from the oceans, and I thought, you know, uh, agriculture is is a nice alternative to that. Also, it's a, it's a great you know, economic development tool, et cetera. So I liked it. And so, yeah, ended up running shrimp farms in Central America. And that's when, you know, we had the idea that uh, aquaculture needed an advocate. And that's when we formed the Global Aquaculture Alliance with George Chamberlain and a few other folks, Peter Jacobson, et cetera, um, which is now the Global Seafood Alliance. So, um, So that's pretty much how I got to where I'm at.
1: You really came in at like the perfect time for aquaculture, I feel like, though. Like you were on man on the scene for so much growth. You've seen so much change th- throughout the last few decades. And before we kind of delve into the topic of small producer engagement, I feel like I have to ask what you view slash maybe what the general accepted view is of what a small producer actually is like. What's the criteria for being a small producer?
2: That's that's a great question. Um, so let me tell you what it's what a small producer is to us. Okay, um, mm, perfect. Uh, a small producer is usually they're producing somewhere, and I'll say it in two terms. First, well, let's talk about volume, and then let's talk about revenue, because that's where really the rubber meets the road. Uh, and so yep. they, they produce somewhere between a hundred metric tons or less. In many cases, we find that they're producing 35, 40 metric tons. And to put it in perspective, you know, so just, just think about it. Um, 40 metric tons is 40,000 kilos. And if you use $3 a kilo as the value of the product in the water, that's $120,000. That's not a whole lot of money when you think that in order to produce those forty thousand, you're going to spend sixty percent of sixty percent of, of the cost is in feed. So, if you harvest one hundred twenty thousand dollars, you know sixty percent of that is what seventy. So it's it's you you're not talking about wealthy people. You're talking like right. about the people space. that I grew up with working out on the farms and, and small agriculture that, that are basically scraping a living off the land, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it makes it very vital, right, that not only do you know what some of your cost out rates are as long as feed is concerned, but health and welfare of the species that you're raising, right, is it a high cost species, like what's the return on investment, the staff that's working. I'm sure it's a very, when you're producing that much, it's a very fine line of what it takes to be successful from becoming unsuccessful.
2: They live very close to the edge. Um, Right. And and small producers are usually not doing, by and large, they're not doing high value uh, species because high value species um, are the more esoteric and so the the process of getting just the seed stock, the juveniles is they're extremely expensive and it kind of puts them out of the marketplace on that. And it's just too much risk for them. So when you see small producers, the majority is going to be, you know, shrimp, tilapia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just to put it in perspective, when it comes to, and and this is aquaculture, then we can talk about fisheries later. Uh, But on the aquaculture side, you know, 89%, and we'll talk about that later, but 89% of the production is small scale and of the world production, you know, over 50% of world production is carp. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't actually guess that.
1: Me either. So, Bill, when you talk about the risks, like you just mentioned, I think it's probably a few things come to mind for everyone, but could you just give a brief overview of what are the categories that kind of Make these small producers be living on the edge, like you were just saying.
2: Well, on the on the let's talk about let's go alphabetically. So we'll talk agriculture and then fisheries. So on the aquaculture side, it's it's not that hard. A <laughs> F um, on the aquaculture side, you always have uh, the issues of of animal husbandry, such as disease. You know, high temperatures, rain, environment, uh, tornadoes, all those kinds of things that can affect, um, you know, and then uh, and then and, and I don't know if we're doing that So let me just say and on the fishery side, on the fishery side, well, you know, it's uh, the whole thing about fisheries is by the grace of God, go I and cast my net up on the water. And sometimes I catch fish and sometimes I don't. And sometimes I catch the fish I'm going after, and sometimes I don't. And so there mm. is just a lot of variability in that. Now, small producers also face some other challenges that are unique to the small producer, such as, you know, infrastructure, ice machines, a dock, capital to invest in improvement. Um, you know, you have small volumes, so it's, You know, you you don't you you can't attract or have difficulty with larger customers. You end up selling a lot of your product uh, pawn side. You end up selling a lot of your product, um, you know, locally. And and so you don't have access to a whole lot of markets. So those are some of the uh, the challenges that face uh, that the small producers face. Uh, We estimate that in many cases, you know, the the waste factor for small producers is is probably somewhere around 30 to
1: 40%. And that's tough when you're close to the margin at right, any given right. point in time.
0: Exactly. So I don't think your response to this next question is going to be a a shock to a lot of people, but I do think it's important that we talk about it and, and kind of get that information out there. But why is it important for the seafood industry to uplift these small producers?
2: Well, I, you know, I don't know if it's as important to the seafood industry as it is important for humanity. okay So right. let's well just let's just put it in perspective. Forty um, percent of the world production in fisheries is small producers. okay? Uh, small fisheries account for over five hundred million livelihoods. And if you look regionally, that those numbers vary. So in Asia, small producers are more around fifty to fifty-five percent of the production. In Africa, they're sixty to seventy percent of the production. So small producers, just this is just fisheries. This is small producers have an enormous impact on the local communities because the you know according to FAO much, up as, as much as 80 to 90% of small producers' product ends up being consumed locally. So when you look Mm -hmm. at food security, uh, you know, the local fishery and aquaculture production is extremely important to those communities and to those regions. You know, on the aquaculture side, fully 89% of all aquaculture production is small scale. You know, we think about Salmon and we think about shrimp and we think about tilapia. But if you if you look at world production, you know, salmon accounts for around five to six percent of the entire world production. Shrimp is somewhere between seven and eight. Tilapia Mm -hmm. is seven or eight, but of that seven or eight, five is in Egypt. And all of that production in Egypt is for local consumption. So fully 20 no, 11% or it's, it's it's only like 11% of the entire world production. The rest is, you know, small scale production consumed locally. And of that rest, as I indicated earlier, mentioned earlier, it's over 50% is some type of carp or bonefish. Right. And those are all primarily in Africa, Asia, and India and those countries or areas. So... Small scale scale producers are incredibly important to the food security and the feeding of the world population. Particularly now that we're at seven billion on our way to nine.
0: Would you say? And I apologize, I didn't prep you for this question, but I just thought of it. Would you say over the last five to ten years, you've seen more of an increase in in small producers, or has there been more of a decline. And I don't know if that's from economic reasons, you know, pandemic reasons. Like what is what is your take on that? It
2: uh, it depends. So on the aquaculture side, there's an increase. On the fishery side, okay. there's a decrease.
1: Why
2: uh aquaculture, because well, let's talk about fisheries first and then we'll go back because fisheries is a quick answer. Okay. The reason on fisheries yep. is depletion of the resource, uh, environmental okay. degradation. Uh, Climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, you know, think about this: uh, migration. We just, we just turned the corner. I think it was three or four years ago. I don't know the exact date, but we turned the corner, and for the first time in human history, we are in urban world. There are more people living in cities now than there are living in rural areas, and that is particularly true of coastal communities. Now on the aquaculture side, uh, I mentioned earlier that that uh, aquaculture is a great economic development tool, and that's why they keep increasing. Uh, aquaculture is the cost of entry for aquaculture; it tends to be low. I mean, if you're going to be doing shrimp or tilapia or carp or something like that, it's it's basically hole in the ground, water You know, it doesn't take <laughs> it doesn't take too much of an investment to, to start an aquaculture project of that nature on on an artisanal way. Um, And, and then from an, from a revenue potential, you know, it's, it's fish or raising some type of uh, fish protein, be it shrimp or whatever is, is quite a difference than than just agriculture. Uh, so take, for example, Michoacan, Mexico, which is where our friend Ciblali lives and everything else. And there's, and in that area, over the past twenty years, mind you, this, these are mountains, and the people there were very, very poor, and the way they made their living was by basically logging the mountain. So, mm-hmm. not very environmentally sustainable or long term. But when they started down the path of trout farming, which was introduced by Shizwali's mother in 20, uh, 20, 25 years ago, you know, it it led them to now take care of the environment because that's where the that's where the trout grows. But think about this: in a in a half hectare of land, you can grow trout and make more money than growing corn and 20 hectares. So is it's it can be, I don't want to say lucrative, but it sure beats raising it. It's you're raising an animal that you're going to sell for two or three dollars a kilo, versus selling corn for thirty cents a kilo. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So from that standpoint, it it offers a great uh, tool for or opportunity for development, for economic growth.
1: Not to mention it's a healthy protein source, which in food deserts, it's hard to find. Exactly, and it's,
2: and it's super efficient. Uh, because just think, you don't use water, you're renting water. Uh, the It's not like you consume the water that you grow the trout in. The water comes in and the water goes out. So you basically use it for an hour. And then it goes and the feed conversion on trout is you know less than two so compared to beef which is seven to eight so it's mm-hmm. and you know and you don't need the land space etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's a very efficient way of raising animal protein
0: and for some of our listeners who aren't industry specific when you mentioned feed conversion or feed convert fcr feed conversion ratio right like i think the beginning of this episode we talked about how much of your expense goes into feed so if you're raising a species that and so feed conversion ratio i'm not the expert in that but my general understanding of it is how much feed does it take to produce what is that one so
2: it's so feed conversion is basically how many pounds, kilos? It's a unit of me- so so yeah. whatever unit of measurement you use, and and it's so let's just talk pounds because our audience tends to be in pounds. So to produce a pound right. of trout, you're going to need two pounds of I'm just going to round it up. You need two pounds of feed,
0: okay. and to produce
2: yeah. beef, you need somewhere between seven to eight pounds of of, of feed mm-hmm. to produce a pound.
0: So in an ideal situation you want to have that that conversion, feed conversion ratio as close to like one to one yes, or uh, as you yeah, possibly can, yeah, right? Correct. Or less.
2: And in some areas, you know, tilapia, for example, and, and carp is of course you don't even feed carp. Let me just put it that way. It's it's you they, they feed off of the natural environment, the the plankton and zooplankton and phytoplankton that exist. Mostly they're herbivores, so they'll they'll eat algae things like that so so think about that you know you have you have an animal that's just going to basically live off of the environment that you just create the environment that which they can uh, thrive um and so in, in the case of tilapia I've, I've seen operations where they are pretty close to one-to-one because they mm-hmm. create a bioflock, they create an environment that there's naturally occurring feed to complement the manufactured feed that they're giving
0: and to clarify again for our listeners we're talking about farmed or yes, we're talking about
2: aquaculture.
0: wild fisheries, you don't need to yeah. worry about that. They're eating whatever they <laughs> exactly. eat exactly <and laughs> wherever you're catching them,
1: speaking of wild caught fisheries, I think it's we've we've touched on it a little bit so far. But can you just give an overview kind of what you did with talking about aquaculture and what percentages of small producers? Can you give some sort of overview on? What small-scale fisheries look like and how they fit into the larger seafood landscape. Well,
2: so small-scale fisheries, fisheries is, is a is is a, as I mentioned earlier is has been decreasing, and and fisheries are facing, in general, they have the same challenges that aquaculture and to infrastructure, access to market, capital, etc. But fisheries have an added component is in that. They're they're they have to deal with environmental degradation. They have to deal with climate. They're much more affected by climate change. Uh, they're much more. Uh, they're affected also by uh, bad previous practices. You know, uh, whereas we thought that the ocean was infinite and we could just pull fish whenever. Um, and now the realization is that, uh, we can no longer do that. Uh, they're also facing a lot of pressure. And I see this in the Northern Gulf of California and in some areas that, you know, you have communities that 20 years ago had 900 inhabitants that were making a living fishing and you go back and now there's mm-hmm. 10,000 and they're all trying to make a living fishing. And that just puts a lot of pressure on the resource and the environment. Mm-hmm. And so they they have some very interesting challenges and, and, and we'll talk a little bit about later with your next questions, et cetera. But um that's you know, with with fishery improvement projects, we've pretty much had an epiphany and for us, and by that I mean the Latin America team and how we're approaching it is that we really need to, to to take into account not just the resource under the water, but what happens afterwards. And uh, I don't know if I've answered your question, but I'll leave it at that because there's a whole s- another subject that we that is going to come up that we're going to discuss further on this.
0: Yeah, and you alluded to it and we're going to jump into that. So tell us what you and your team down in Latin America are doing right now to- as far as initiatives, support mechanisms, what are you implementing to help assist these small producers in your area?
2: Well, we've been we've been learning, and uh, we've been on a journey the last three years, and uh, it started it started with aquaculture because that's what we know best. Uh, but uh, it uh, what's what happened is that as as we were working on these aquaculture improvement projects. Um, you know, we, we interface with a lot of, uh, with many uh, foundations, NGOs, governmental agencies, et cetera. And they said, you know, that looks very interesting. Could you apply that to fisheries? And so we started looking at that as well. But let's go back. So, what we do, or what I think is different than what we do, is that we take a very holistic approach to improvement projects, be they aquaculture or fisheries. Because it allows us to see which part or parts of the activity are failing or are weaker compared to the others. Because our objective is to have a long-lasting permanent impact. And so that means that the fisheries and agriculture activity must be not only environmentally responsible, but it but they also must be economically sustainable as well. Mm-hmm. So... What we did is, you know, because if it's not economically sustainable, you know, this project is going to, only going to last as long as there's funding. And the moment that there is no funding, you know, the project goes away and the activity goes away. So we want something that the funding that we we want to lend a hand up, not a handout. That's basically the way that we look at.
1: How you approach the it the old yep. teach a man to fish, and and,
2: <laughs> and it's and I have to say you have to be the way we say it in, in, in Mexico or in, in Spanish we say sangre fría, which means cold blooded, because you know when you take into that council what we do is that we have developed uh, assessment and and diagnostic tools checklists where we look at the whole activity not only just the fishing or the aquaculture side but then also um, we look at the supply chain, how is the product handled, you know, after the uh, harvest or capture, excuse me, you know, how is it transported and sold into whom? you know, is it equitable, Uh, who benefits? And with that information, then we can do an analysis and determine viability, growth potential, and what are the needs of the community or the activity in order for it to be economically, viable, sustainable. And if we find that, you know, when it's and it's all fine when you can see a path forward, the difficulty comes when you're looking at something and you go, you know, you're never going to make a living in this. And then that's a hard conversation. Because it's like. You, you, you have to be honest. You can't make promises you can't keep.
0: Right. You have to be
2: transparent, and and you owe it to that community. You owe it to those people to say, you know, let's let's help you find something else to do. Because this is not viable long term for you. And so I, that's basically how we've approached it. So. Once we do that whole study, and um, and we do the analysis, then that provides us a roadmap uh, for activities and actions. And uh, we have developed a team of uh, expert consultants, friends, etc., that uh, are smarter than your average bear. And mm-hmm. depending on the needs of the of the enterprise or activity. Then we deploy the type of people that can help in order to yeah. do, you know, the us in order to do the muscle building, the improvements required for them uh, to um, to succeed. And that might even involve, uh, and it does in many cases on the commercial side, is getting in touch with buyers and and other areas and say, hey, we're working on this project. We need your help by at least committing to purchasing this product if we can deliver it to you to your specs and at what price. And let's make a deal now. And that then drives the whole wagon backwards so we can say, look, we can sell it at this price. This is what we're going to have to do with it. This is what you're going to be getting at the end uh, being as you pull it out of the water. And... And now we are building a supply chain that can deliver on that economic vi- viability while we work on the environmental, sustainability, social side. Of
1: you mentioned that people in the Latin America region have come to you asking, how can we replicate the work that you've done in aquaculture with fisheries? But I'm curious if you think that some of the projects and initiatives that you've worked on in Latin America can be replicated and used in not only fisheries but also other regions of the world like it's it's a big world out there and there's a lot of work to be done particularly with small producer engagement and to your point earlier of how in Africa and Southeast Asia there's so much small producer production For lack Mm -hmm. of a better term, and they need support just as much as anybody else. So, how do you see some of the work that you've done fitting into that larger global picture?
2: I I think it's it's, the quick answer is is yes, uh, we can replicate. Um, You know, the challenges facing small producers are worldwide are are by and large the Mm -hmm. same. You know, there's nuances, maybe the distribution or whatever but by and large they they're all you know facing the same the same challenges so the process and the checklist you know you can use as a guide for just about anywhere you go um, having said that the devil's always in the details and execution is is a challenging part you know so you can you know as i said Pretty straightforward. The process is pretty straightforward and everything else. But the execution is where it starts getting into the nitty gritty. Um, You know, it's a willing partner that is committed to the project is vital. If you don't have the buy in of the community, if you don't have the buy in of the actors, um, it's not going to go anywhere. Or Mm -hmm. it's going to go as long as you're there and there's funding. And that's why this right. thoughtful, careful analysis, and I say analysis, but it's more like an interview process. It's, 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 it's you know, we, and I'll use a term that, that that we try not to use, but we don't want to be imperialists. You know, we see this a lot where people come in, into a community and say, we know what's wrong with you and we're going to fix you. Mm-hmm. Without taking any thought or consideration as to what's their life like? What have they, what are, what are they facing? What do they think is their biggest problem and what do they wish for or what kind of help they wish for the most?
1: Yeah. They know their needs better. Exactly. Than
2: so it's incumbent upon us again in this process, in this checklist to be very to be very thoughtful about, Taking into consideration and understanding what their challenges are and what they are facing on a day-to-day basis, and that's going to then make us better, or uh, in, in in terms of how do we provide assistance, how do we provide guidance, how do we
0: provide help? Well, and I think the key to all this, Bill, like you've continued to say, right, and why it's it, it's almost I wouldn't say easy, but what makes it less challenging to, to recreate the success that you're having in Latin America at a global scale is the process, right? How do you yes. approach it, right? It's asking all those questions. And I'm sure as you've been doing this over time, that process you have fine-tuned. You know which questions to ask and you know like based off these responses, you now know which tracks to go down. And I, I feel like as that gets more refined it becomes maybe a little bit easier or maybe faster to get to conclusions and figure out next steps
2: well i can tell you that we made a lot of mistakes <laughs> and so,
0: yeah. and so a lot of all good things yes, come from we've made from a mistakes, lot of mistakes though, right? which
2: means <laughs> that we've learned a lot um and right. uh and so yes to, to, you are correct it uh It's it's kind of practice makes perfect, and and as and and we have a mantra that we we try very hard not to let the perfect get in the way of the good, and so Mm -hmm. you know you can be you can you can slow yourself down. It's a paralysis by analysis type of a thing. So um, we know we're comfortable making mistakes and i know that that's going to sound weird um because if we make a mistake what we do is that we try to make it as small as possible <laughs> you know we, yep. we you know making making a bunch of uh, small mistakes and learning from them is 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 in our view acceptable as you try not to make a, mis- a mistake big enough to break everything um so right. let's 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 put it in context you know and and so it because that's the only way that you learn that's the only way that you adapt and so um, yeah I, th- the more you do it the better you get at it um, it's like interviewing people etc now that's not to say that we've had success hundred percent of the time no um, mm-hmm. you know we've we've had some experiences where issues outside of operational activities have made projects unfeasible you know uh, things like uh, like a socially fractured community, you know, uh, lack of security. There's places in, uh, in in Latin America where the cartels or the gangs are so prevalent that you just can't work there, and and neither yeah. can anybody else. Uh, you know, we've had uh, in 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 certain countries, uh, you know, they it doesn't matter your good intentions. Uh, they see you as an American imperialist or a United States imperialist, and they don't want to work with you. Um, Mm. and so, you know, so, so those are some of the things that you have to deal with and, and so, and, and work your way around them. Like, okay, you don't want to deal with Americans. Fine. We'll get a team of Mexicans or whatever. You know, we just, you see what you can do or look, there's a lot more need than we have resources. And so we're going to apply the resources where, where we're going to have uh, the best, uh, Possibility for success.
0: So, switching gears a little bit, um, how do certification programs factor into the equation when it comes to propelling the progress of small producers within the industry?
2: Well, I can I can I can speak about GSA and the and the BAP standards and and uh, and the new standards that we have the Responsible Fishing Vessel standard. Yep. And in most cases, it's it's simply too expensive and time consuming uh for for these uh small producers to engage in a certification process. Where the value comes from and, and we do the and we use this a lot particularly on aquaculture improvement projects is lies in the standards. Because the standards are provide a roadmap towards improvement. So you basically what what we do on the aquaculture side, and uh, and we're going to be doing this on the fishery side as well, is you go in and you do basic, you do a diagnostic analysis. You send a, a, an auditor to go in there and say, this is where you know there's red flags. This is where these are mm-hmm. the areas of improvement. And then what we do is that as part of the process, we prioritize. Which are the things that needs to be done first? Uh, which are the things that are going to have, uh, and we base that on on impact. The ones that are going to have the greatest impact towards the economic vi- viability and the improvement of your operation. And so, um, so that's where the value of of the certification programs come in. It also comes in, and and I'll say it again. In, particularly because of of GSA, it it comes in because of our reputation and the fact that uh, over the years, we have built uh, a a remarkable network of like-minded people and uh, knowledgeable people and experts that um, we can convene and apply towards problems and apply towards challenges. Yeah. we can uh, and so and so that's how you know that, that's the way we see our role. We see our role is is and again it's there's two different aspects. One is on the agriculture side, and the other one is on the on the uh, fishery side. Uh, but we see our role is as is program imp- or improvement, and not only on the production side the case of agriculture fisheries, but also on just the whole, as I said, value chain chain of supply chain throughout the system in order to extract the maximum amount of value that then can be returned to the small producer.
0: I know that we've we've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, I want to make sure that before we run out of time that I give you a platform to is to discuss anything else that we haven't uh, talked about so far with the questions that we've asked you? Is there anything else, Bill, that you'd like to get out to our audience while we have their attention?
2: Well, I, so we talked a little bit about waste earlier. And um, and so let me just say this. And I think that we we should really, I would encourage us, I would encourage the audience or anybody else, let's say, to really consider how we consume things. Um According to the United States Department of Agriculture, on the agricultural side, we waste forty five percent of everything we produce and 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 when you look at and when you look at the fisheries and the aquaculture side, you know when you when you think about the tremendous amount of work that it takes to put that fillet or that peeled shrimp on your plate or whatever, it's you know we should, we should be thoughtful and grateful and thankful for the people and the effort that went into delivering that food, that that nourishment that is on your plate. Uh, we sometimes, many times, I don't know, but we don't we don't seem to appreciate what it takes. Never mind the the animal itself. So um you know we we should be thoughtful about it and thankful.
0: I think switching people's minds into that mindset, I guarantee we could reduce that number with just a little bit little bit of effort. 45% seems like a very 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 high amount.
2: Yes, and and I mean I, I I could be wrong, but I think I'm pretty sure it's it's somewhere in that 30 to 45 percent and, and depending on, on what what it is, um, you know, right. we mentioned earlier, we high. mentioned earlier on the fishery side that up to 40 percent and that's uh, there's no far firm numbers on it. It's mostly anecdotal, um, but mm-hmm. you can see it. And, um, and just think, you know, um, you know, if you're selling something for a dollar, but it's forty percent that's getting wasted. You could, uh, you're actually getting sixty percent, sixty cents on the dollar. So, you know, there's mm-hmm. there's a huge right. opportunity right there. Then.
1: Well, Bill, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise with us. This has been long overdue. I can't believe that you haven't been on the show before because, first of all, if you don't know Bill and you're listening, Bill is one of the biggest talkers I've ever met. So he's perfect for a podcast. So thank you so much Bill for coming on. It's been
2: my pleasure.
0: We we wanted to plug too that Bill is not only the director of market development in Latin America but he's also a water polo god. And I, okay, <laughs> while while you have the platform, we usually don't we we usually don't have self plugs, but I can you just tell us what you recently accomplished with your water polo oh, team. Oh
2: yes, we were uh thank you for that. We were at, uh at the Masters, at the World Masters Water Polo Championship. And uh, we came in third, so- uh, In, the, in whole the whole world. In uh, <laughs> <Okay? laughs> so the whole world. For 65 and overs. Okay, So we beat the Canadians, we beat the Argentinians, we, we beat a, a slew of Japanese teams, but we were there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing.
0: Well, let, just to reiterate what Maddie said, Bill, thanks so much. This was Overdue. We appreciate you coming on. We appreciate all the hard work you and your team are doing down in Latin America, and we will be chatting with you Absolutely. soon. Well, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Folks, that was our conversation with Bill Honig, the Director of Market Development in Latin America. Uh I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Pod to go to globalseafood.org slash podcast to fill out our online form if you want to contact us and also fill out this new feature for 2024, our online survey. It's quick. It's easy. Your questions may get picked to be asked on the show. So please go check us out on both of those sections. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you.
1: And if you liked this episode or any episode that you've listened to of ours, be sure to subscribe to Aquademia so that we can get downloaded to your device every time we release a new episode and leave us a rating and review. So that's about it. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode and we will talk to you next time. Ciao. Bye.